Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at the bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. Hello there. If things sound a little bit different to usual, it's because I'm not in our reading library or in our writer's studio where these would normally be recorded. But in fact, out and about in Paris, to be precise, I'm on the Rue Bertholet, which is not far from the Port Royal neighbourhood of Paris. The reason that I'm outside on this crisp Parisian winter morning is because our guest today is Lauren Elkin, author of number 9192, A Diary of a Year on the Bus. The book is a transcription of the notes that Lauren made on her telephone between 2014 and 2015 while riding the 91 and 92 buses between her home in this neighbourhood and where she used to teach in the Invalides uh, district of the city. So we decided, instead of holding ourselves up in a confined, warm room, we would hit the streets or more specifically hit the buses and record our conversation there. Now, this could be the best idea for a podcast we've ever had, or potentially the worst. We'll find out. So I've just come to the end of the Rue Bertolet, or at least where it joins the Boulevard de Port-Royal, and I can see the bus stop, so let's see if I can find Lauren. And here she is, Lauren Elkin. Adam, hi, how are you? Oh my god, it's so good to see you. Fancy meeting you here at my bus stop. Yeah, it's almost like we planned it, isn't it? I know, it's so weird. Now, you say your bus stop. Um, So this is, as I said in the introduction, we're in the Port Royal neighbourhood of Paris. So this is the the place where you lived for for how long? Oh gosh, uh, 2007 to 2015, so yeah, eight years. Eight years, okay. And this route, which we're about to ride together, was your more or less your daily commute, right? It was, yeah. I lived just around the corner over there, and this is the exact stop where I would, you know, there's, we're, we're sort of in the middle of an intersection on a traffic island, and so there's, you know, road on either side, and I would very often find myself caught on, you know, the opposite corner, watching my bus go by, going, ah! <laughs> <laughs> and as we can see from um, the little indicator, if it proves right, the next one won't be for about 18 minutes. So if you miss one bus, that's quite high stakes. Well, if the LED signs are to be believed, mm-hmm. which, you know, in my day, they were not. Uh-huh. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about this area then in your day, because um, so even by the end of the book, you have left this neighborhood and you've moved, uh, you've moved uh, I believe, to Belleville or mm-hmm. that sort of yeah. that sort of area. So north of the river, um, just revisiting this neighborhood now, have you is there much that has changed? Um, not a ton. I mean, it is essentially the same, like the Val Cafe over there looks exactly the same. They haven't changed their awning, like nothing. Um, but I, I was walking down the Rue Bertholet on my way here and noticed there's this one hotel called 
the Seven Hotel, or I think, you know, it used to be called Le Set, because it was just a seven, mm -hmm. the number seven. Um, and so I just assumed it was Le Set Hotel. But now they've spelled it out. They've changed their awning and they've spelled it out in lowercase English letters. So I think there's like the creeping kind of new mm -hmm. Parisization of this neighborhood, which for such a long time has held out against that. And because that's one of the things that people often cite as um, being quite particular about Paris compared to, for example, London, is that it's quite conservative architecturally, which, which by conservative, I don't mean that, you know, there's, there's no sort of extravagances of design because throughout the centuries, there have been some wonderfully kind of beautiful and ornate buildings, but that the authorities like to conserve, they like to preserve, they like to kind of keep neighborhoods relatively unchanged. And yet I can imagine in sort of, if you haven't been here particularly regularly for about seven years, maybe it's things I don't know, like the, the street furniture, for example, is this the same bus stop? It, it feels newish to mm -hmm. me. Yeah. Yeah, it is the same bus stop. They redid them, I think, while I was living here. So, like, those LED signs that we were talking about were not there when I first moved to this neighborhood. And even, I think, when I first started taking this bus route to teach at AUP. Um, so they are they are new, but new, like, for the mid, you know, 20 teens. And, and when you started taking this bus route, was it purely uh, something of convenience uh, as opposed to taking the metro, as opposed to going on foot or bicycle? Or was there something... Is there something about the bus that sort of it's one of your favorite ways to travel? No, it was really just by convenience. I mean, this part of Paris is a little bit of a dead zone for metros. Mm -hmm. There's the Line 7 over there um, at saint de bonton which is the closest metro stop, but it doesn't go where I needed mm -hmm. it to go. I would have had to go over to the right bank and then change to get the 8 back down to AUP. Um, and then there's the the RERB um, not too far from here at Port Royal, but that also didn't doesn't go west, yeah. it goes north-south. So yeah, it was just purely a matter of convenience. You know, I was really, I think, intimidated by the bus uh -huh. before I started taking <laughs> this bus route. And I really just figured it out, like on the RAT website, they have one of those journey planner things. And it said, take the 91 to the 92. So I said, okay, I guess that's what I'm going to do. Because that's, that's something I was going to sort of raise and maybe confess is that I don't know if it's, it's I don't know quite what it is, but I've always had a, a little bit of a distaste for, mm -hmm. for buses. I think in part it's to do with what, feels like a certain inefficiency because they can get stuck in traffic mm -hmm. in the way that the uh, the metro can't. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's also something about, um, and again, maybe this is specifically British buses, buses I'm thinking of, but they, they can be quite quite stuffy, quite, mm. uh, quite enclosed. Did you have any sort of preconceptions or prejudices even against the bus as a form of transport before you had to take it regularly? I really didn't. Um, you know, I come from New York and, you know, people take the bus in New York, maybe not the same sort of people who take the metro. I think you're right. Like the metro obviously just moves unless mm -hmm. something you know happens where your train stops and the bus can get stop, stuck in traffic. So you tend to see maybe someone with, you know, who's not in as much of a hurry on the mm -hmm. bus. Um, but, you know, no, the, Par the buses in Paris, they're they're great. They're not that stuffy. They're they're efficient. Um, I was really amused a bunch of years ago and there was a whole like kerfuffle in London over like bendy buses. I should just pause us. So the 91, it's heading in the other direction. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> oh, so close. Sorry, the bendy buses. Okay. Uh, yeah, the bendy buses, I, it was a really long time ago. I think the mayor of London at the time, Ken Livingston, like mm -hmm. was trying to bring in bendy buses and they kept catching on fire. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and it was like, what is wrong, London? What's wrong with you? You know, bendy buses in Paris are perfectly fine yes. and very, you know, well suited to the kind of windy streets. Mm -hmm. oh, I should pause maybe. The streets of Paris kind of bend. So it's nice to have a bus that can bend with them. <laughs> so let's talk about the, the genesis of the project. So you're taking this bus, you're getting up uh, every morning. There's a few uh, <laughs> a throwaway comments in the book about how uh, 
how horrendous and how difficult you find uh, <laughs> or you found at least yeah, mornings to be um, was was well, well maybe you can introduce the project a little bit to our listeners before I before I quiz you on it sure um, I have a, one question though because when the bus does come do we have tickets should I get my ticket ah, out? that is a very good point <laughs> uh, I, I have a pass oh but... right okay so let me get my ticket out so that I can validate my ticket because yeah. it's very important and you were you were able to buy a ticket because this is one change which is happening yeah. as we record which is they're phasing out paper tickets they are I'm so sad about it <laughs> I mean I know okay maybe it's better for the environment to not mm-hmm. have these little paper tickets um, and you know it's fine but it's really the end of an era and uh, I'm going to hold on to the ones that I have which I use as little bookmarks I have a couple like purple ones from mm-hmm. the purple era and even some wow, blue yeah. ones from when I first moved to Paris yeah yeah it's, it's really there's, there's something quite iconic although that's a really interesting example of that sort of uh, almost extensive kind of uh, plus a change in that I think of the current ticket as quite iconic mm-hmm. but actually yeah just like you I remember the blue ones the mm-hmm. purple ones they've actually changed mm-hmm designed quite a few times yeah. since I've been here yeah, yeah. and yet you sort of integrated into this yeah, exactly this and the ticket de métro has taken on other meanings in you know slang French culture which we don't need to go into because maybe <laughs> this is a family podcast <laughs> it's, it's a podcast for quite liberal families if you do want to go into it <laughs> no I, I think people can just look that up <laughs> okay um so so you you're, you're getting the bus at sort of eight o'clock mm-hmm. in the morning the 8 12 I tried for the 8 12 I didn't always make it the 8 12 and so what, what was this? What was the genesis of this project? Mm-hmm. What was there? Was there a moment when you decided mm-hmm. that, okay, the the way I'm going to cope with these these rides is to mm-hmm. is, is is to take notice? Mm-hmm. Is, is, is it to was it to sort of a, a project that was sort of larger in your life that that you concentrated on for the bus? Like, well, it it happened because I I had just finished writing the draft of Flanners and I'd submitted it to my editor and I believe they'd given me the delivery advance delivery portion of the advance so I had a little influx of cash, um, and I was teaching at the time so you know I, I was like okay I think now now's the point I can afford an iPhone a smartphone <laughs> so it was my first smartphone my first time having like apps on my phone and you know in 2014, and so yeah I got really obsessed with how easy it was to write in the notes app mm-hmm. as opposed to having to take out a really lumbering, you know, notebook mm-hmm. and pen. Um, and so, yeah, I just started taking these notes just as a, a way of like capturing the runoff energy mm-hmm. of observing that, that had, I had stirred up during Flanners. And it was really just a way of kind of clearing my mind and centering myself before I was going to teach in the morning. And then I didn't think of it at all as like anything other than just a, gi- a diary, uh-huh. like a, a you know virtual diary. Okay, so not um, not writing with an eye to publication, really. Um, not at all. No, mm-hmm. no, no. Um, it wasn't really until probably the April or May of 2015 when I had that ectopic pregnancy, mm-hmm. and you know by that time the Charlie Hebdo attacks had happened that I thought, oh, actually, there's n- now there's like an arc to my mm-hmm. journal, and actually now the journal is is about something. It's about trying to process. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, it's the 83, not our bus, ah. not our bus. No, no, that, that used to happen a lot. You get all excited. No. Um, yeah, so it was a way of kind of processing the way that major events affect the everyday and kind of eventually are absorbed by the, the minutiae of everyday lives to the point where, you know, the terrorist attacks that happened in January, but by like March, we were no longer thinking about them all of our uh-huh. minds and what does that mean you know what, what how does trauma register on an everyday level I guess is what I, I I figured by the end of it I was actually writing about and that's when I put all the notes together and tried to make them into a manuscript 
I'd like to come on to the um, yeah the, the, the sort of the the arc that life kind of imposed on on the book um, in a moment. But just sticking with the idea of bus books because it's interesting. Obviously, you say you didn't write for publication, and yet in particularly in French literature, and you talk about this in the book. There's quite a um, a history, quite a tradition of um, of bus books, particularly among the uh, Ulipo, of course, who, on whom you've written uh, a book in the past. Yeah, I definitely had in my mind that. Um, well, Perec, for instance, Georges Perec had, had done this amazing project in the Place Saint-Sulpice in 1974 where he went every day for a few days and sat in various cafes and tried to exhaust um, the place by describing it down to you know the smallest detail uh, in his journal. And you know he was faced with the challenge of documenting everything that's happening before you you know like I couldn't even begin where do you begin if I wanted to describe what's happening now you always you have to start somewhere there's an you find a need I think when you're looking at the world anyone any of us to organize it and to make sense of it and you know to for me it's the past versus the present and and so that's how my brain is working and Perec makes us aware of the way in which none of us are neutral observers in the city we can't just describe a city we're always part of it and it's always being filtered through our consciousnesses and what does that mean about the way that we live in cities together and you know the ways in which cities are not neutral expressions of like whatever urban life but have been planned and are created you know daily by the people who live there and in a way, I guess this is quite an interesting companion piece to Perec's book because one thing that he writes a lot about are the buses that go past him, in fact. So he is he is stationary in Place Saint-Sulpice. And it's almost like, yeah, your, your books kind of intersect, um, but you're, you're specifically in motion or, you know, albeit quite slow motion a lot of the time. Yeah, exactly. There's also a book by Annie Arnaud, which, was, which informed this project, which has just come out in English from Fitzcarraldo, although it came out in America a while back in Tanya Leslie's translation. It's called Journal du Dehors, and in, in English it was translated as, as Exteriors. And it, that's really, like, more immediately the, the text that inspired this text, because she's on the RER commuting from her home in Sergi-Pontoise in the suburbs to Paris, just, you know, to do errands or see friends or whatever. Um, and she's writing about the people she sees and, you know, what they're reading, what they're saying, you know, what's in the newspaper that day. But her project is different in that she writes specifically about the world around her and says um, explicitly, I'm not going to write about myself and my feelings. I'm just going to document the world I see. And my project is that, you know, I don't think it's actually possible to document the world you see without entering into it in the first person. Okay, and so here is the 91 pulling up now. It's actually pretty busy, but let's see if we can let's see if we can get on. Okay, maybe should we go on the front there? Okay, so we're <laughs> here we go. So we're climbing on the 91. It's quite a full 91. Let's head on down. Excuse my battle. So here we are on your old route, <laughs> attracting stares from uh, curious Parisians all around us. Um, so was this pretty standard for you, um, this, this loss of level of busyness? It was generally not this busy, I think, because it was earlier in the morning. Um, 
and even though it was rush hour, it definitely yeah. was not this rammed. Um, maybe more people are taking the bus now. It's, it's an interesting thing to ponder. I did wonder. I assumed late morning would be. <laughs> I assumed late morning would be would be a little quieter, but, but seemingly not. So just looking at the at the bus itself again. Um, is this very much as you remember it, or is it? Uh, have they been modernized? No, I think it's basically the same. I recognize those like orange and aqua blue and yellow like carpeted um, seat backs. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that you um, uh, come back to sort of several times in the book is the idea of kind of uh, bus etiquette or mm -hmm. bus ethics, as, um, right. as you call it, which yeah. is something which I've been kind of quite obsessed with for, for years, or bus etiquette, metro etiquette, yeah. street etiquette, <laughs> just the way that sort of, I suppose, people interact or try not to interact with each other on the street. Could you give us a bit of a, a rundown of some of your sort of principle sort of rules of operation <laughs> while riding a Parisian bus? Well, it's very hard to know, actually. I think it's bus ethics are always in flux. Um, you know, there's like the standard, you know, you give up your seat for someone who's older or, you know, less able to stand, someone who's pregnant, someone who has a small child with them. Um, that's that's official. You know, if you break one of those rules, you're basically just a dick. <laughs> um, but then there's, you know, this route connects a lot of hospitals, um, for instance, and, and railway stations. And you just that something I was trying to think about in the book and have been talking about, you know, while I've been talking about the book is you just don't know what people are going through. You know, so for part of the book, I was pregnant, but it was the very early stage of a pregnancy. And I wasn't showing, but I was incredibly nauseous and really didn't feel well and very often needed needed a seat. But I didn't display any of the outward trappings of needing a seat. It wasn't clear that I was pregnant. Um, so sometimes I'd be sitting in a seat and, you know, kind of hold fast to my seat, even if someone else who looked like they maybe needed a seat, needed a seat because I was like, well, I, I'm, I really don't feel well and I need the seat. Or if I had like a migraine headache, I would really need to sit. And you feel like an asshole because it's not clear to other people why you're there. It might just look like you're obstinately refusing to get up for someone who, who should sit. So it's really that negotiation of, you know, how how we share common space and public space. Or like the windows are, are you know, I see one of them is not open, which is, is scandalous. Both of them are not open in the age of COVID, but, you know we're in a very enclosed space most people are wearing masks though in london they're not <laughs> in london are they obliged to is, is it the rule in public obliged to, but they don't okay yeah a lot of people are, are maskless in public okay. transport in london it's really infuriating i'm no, very glad to see that the parisians are compliant yeah yeah, but, yeah you know if you want to open the window and someone else is sitting in front of the window this is pre-pandemic you know in in my day um, you know, you have to kind of negotiate around, like, uh -huh. is it okay to open the window? Are they going to be angry if I kind of get in their space to get around them? Can I ask them to do mm -hmm. it? So just negotiating everyone's comfort. Um, if you're someone who's attuned to, you know, as you said, like, questions of how we get get around each other or live together in, in a space like this um, can become quite tricky and yeah. hard to parse. You mentioned um, the sort of uh, officializing of certain rules. And so we're standing in front of a a sort of a four-seated area which is reserved for um, well according to the picture it seems it, there's a picture of, a, of somebody with a cane there's a picture of somebody carrying a child there's a picture of a pregnant woman there's a picture of somebody with a, a cast and a cane and there's somebody with another cane which I suspect is a, uh, a cane for, um, for, 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 for blind or visually challenged people um, one thing I can't see it on here but I've always found very interesting in in Francis, the fact that there is a sort of a ranking given to uh, 
to these kind of like I think I think at the top um, at least the way it used to be displayed was for the the war wounded yeah 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 and then you know and then they sort of decline from there but on the subject of the kind of the the, the signs themselves I, I I think it seems to be quite a sort of a rich cultural vein in um, in Parisian transport. Oh yeah, I think Roland Barthes would have a field day. <laughs> what are the signs signifying? And so it was a sign that actually um, inspired the project. I don't know if they still have these signs. Um, but there was a sticker on the wall of the 91 that said, your telephone is precious, it may be envied, um, please be vigilant when using it. And that's basically just you know a, a tip to beware of pickpockets. Um, and I thought, okay, I will use my, my phone and be vigilant mm -hmm. about it, but I'm going to use it to carry out a, vi a vigil, mm -hmm. essentially. And instead of losing myself in the screen of the phone, um, I'm going to use the phone to document the uh -huh. world that I see around me. Because that's also something which you go into quite a lot in the book, is the, the presence of phones and the way that phones are, are used on buses, um, which I guess in, in a way is probably one of the most significant sort of fundamental changes uh, about the way that people move around the city generally and you know when, so on public transport in the past people would read newspapers perhaps they'd read books they might just look out the window whereas now uh, very often if people are reading something it's on it's it's they're looking at the screen of their phones do you think that has given that has changed the way people are on their uh, while they're on public transport um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think it makes them less observant because they're very absorbed in whatever they're looking at on their phones. And it's a different kind of absorption than reading a book. For instance, there's a woman right next to you reading a book. Um, and, you know, you can read a book and, and enter the world of the book, but it's a different thing when you're... Like, the phone is like a sustained state of, of absorption and, and inattention. You're constantly, as I document in the book, like, shifting between apps and like you're checking your email you're ch I don't know how everyone is at their phones but you know I assume they're checking their email maybe they're playing a game they're looking at Twitter they're looking at the news um, it's different than a book where you're kind of absorbed in the world of the book but you're you, you know hopefully not forgetting that you're on a bus and you have to get off soon that's another thing I guess which is quite curious isn't it is that you as you say you don't know what somebody is doing and that's whereas in the, in the past it was sort of it was relatively obvious you could see if somebody was reading a novel you could see if they were um, catching up on the on the news of the day and something. Whereas the phone, there's something quite kind of confidential about it, and therefore, I guess a little bit alienating to that sort of the sense of community and the sense of kind of interpersonal relations. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really true. Although actually, I'm quite. Did you want to take a seat, Lauren? No. Um, no. <laughs> I, I always consider myself the least legitimate person for, <laughs> for a seat, so never even sit down even when it's quite empty. <coughs> um, actually, on the subject of phones, looking around curiously, very few people seem to be on their phones here. Yeah, that's, um, I'm very surprised. I don't know if that's been a kind of a, a, a cultural shift, or <laughs> or whether we're just on a on a particularly kind of a mindful yeah. bus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. I think they're talking to each other. So we're, we're on the Boulevard Montparnasse now, and we may have already passed it, but there's one thing you mentioned, the um, Espace Tabac. Yeah, I think we've already passed that. It's yeah. on that side of the street, if it's still there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it's, um, in, a, in a way, I guess that sort of 
captures that idea of a city changing or not changing, as you, as you say, like before everywhere was an espace And now it's sort of, um, I guess, since I moved to Paris like 16 years ago now, 17 years ago now, um, that's probably one of the most significant kind of atmospheric changes to the city is the way the sort of smoking has been confined, I guess, to the streets, to the terrace. Um, whereas before it was, yeah, it was, it was really everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I remember being angry about that too, because first it happened in New York, and then I left New York, and then I was in Paris, and you know, I wasn't a smoker, but I liked the ambiance of smoking. <laughs> Very happy for other people to give themselves lung cancer so I could enjoy the ambiance. Um, but yeah, I remember feeling really like, oh no, you know, Paris will never be Paris again. And now I'm a bit older and I'm actually really, really pleased that you can't really smoke anywhere. <laughs> um, so we're moving on a, quite a clip um, at the moment, or at least it feels like it to me, I guess. Oh, okay. So it's, I guess it's kind of maybe because it's late morning. But um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the sort of the, the movement through the city, because of course you're... Um, your previous book, Flaneurs, mm -hmm. was all about walking, mm -hmm. um, which is sort of one specific uh, means of locomotion and one sort of uh, one that is at a certain, uh, is carried out at a certain pace. Sorry, I'm just letting somebody get past. <laughs> Has the route? 1900, whatever, like Montparnasse, 1945 or whatever. And now it's Montparnasse Cinema. They've renamed the bus stop. Well, there was a few years ago, probably about three years ago, there was one of those kind of generational updates of French bus routes. Oh, right. Um, which sort of really, like, I think um, generally the, the routes remain unchanged yeah, for decades yeah, yeah. at a time. And then... And then suddenly they decide to throw everything up in the air, or at least, yeah. or at least tweak them. So, but yeah, are, are so I think we... I think we are getting off. If we're going to change the ninety-two, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. we're going to get off. Um, what the hell is it called? Place du 18 juin 1940, Okay. Okay. Well, let's. In in which case, let's concentrate on uh, on our change, and we'll yeah. pick up the conversation. <laughs> when we're safely at the next bus stop. Ah, so we're back outside again. We're at uh, Montparnasse. We're outside the uh, Bretagne cinema. Um, yeah, I mean, Montparnasse, I guess, is one of the, the neighbourhoods, not, not so much in our time in Paris, but over the over the 20th century that saw one of the most kind of dramatic um, changes and the sort of an embodiment of, a, I guess, an, an anti-conservation mm -hmm. approach with the sort of the destruction of the historic neighborhood and the building of the, of the huge tower. Do you, think, do you think the Tour Montparnasse has become, like, like, like Centre Pompidou has maybe kind of entered people's affections or do you think <laughs> it's still a kind of a blight on the landscape? Oh, I think it's still a blight. I mean, I think there was, I heard about a project a few years ago where they were going to try to apply like some kind of treatment to the windows to make them transparent so you couldn't see them. <laughs> they were effectively going to just disappear the tower. <laughs> I don't know what happened with that project. Well, I, I can report that we can see the tower very clearly yeah. um, now. I remember in my early days here, they, were, they had to basically strip asbestos from, uh, <laughs> from the entire construction. So it was, uh, 
It was under scaffolding for it's quite... It's really nice to go to the top, though. It's really beautiful up there. You can, like, go up there and have a drink and, you know, look out at Paris or go up onto the roof. It's, it's, I definitely recommend it. It's very cool. And it has the advantage of it's the only spot in Paris where you can't see the Tour Montparnasse. Exactly. It's what they used to say about the Eiffel Tower, right? I think, like, the writers of Paris used to love to have lunch at the restaurant on the Eiffel Tower because it was the only place they couldn't see the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> well, the Eiffel Tower is having the last laugh, I think, in that. <laughs> So the, the question I started asking before we um, we had oh, to get yeah, off sorry. and to change was um, about the sort of the means of locomotion. So your your previous book was Flaneurs, which was all about walking, mm-hmm. uh, specifically walking in the in the in the city and specifically women walking in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, what does the experience of riding the bus through the same streets that you've walked down so many times? How, how does that change your um, your experience of um, of the streets of the city? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, you're going at, it's such a unique pace, I think, riding the bus. It's like faster than some cars because you have your own lane and faster than you could go on foot or maybe on, on a bicycle. Um, but it's pretty slow because you're stopping and starting every little bit. So it really is a different, like, it gives a different rhythm to the city. Here we are. The 91 is coming in one minute. Ah, the 92. So, oh, sorry, the 92. Thank you. So okay, get yourself ready. <laughs> So, you know, when you're when you're walking in the city, you have the luxury of just kind of stopping and starting as you like and looking around a corner or whatever. And the bus, you know, it's totally determined by the route. It's, you know, it's it's not up to you. But unlike Metro, you can actually jump off and jump back mm-hmm. on again if, if you feel inspired to do so. And if you have a pass, mm-hmm. I think that's really exci- the exciting thing about getting rid of the tickets is that I think mm-hmm. the pass probably makes it a lot easier to, you know, take public transport or, or bend it to your will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I, I won't be able to refer to my notes because they're now buried at the bottom of some pocket <laughs> as I was climbing off of the bus. But you mentioned uh, a writer who talks about sort of the the height you travel at as well when you're on a bus, which is sort of slightly raised compared to compared to the walker, which is something I never really considered before. But it's definitely yeah quite a unique perspective in which to to view familiar streets. This is our 92 coming up, so we're going to have to jump on. Yeah, that's Hervé Guibert in Ghost Image. Oh, uh, this, this one is much quieter. Yeah. This is this is nice. We might even get to sit down. Maybe. We'll see. Yes. So let's pick up. So Hervé. Hervé Guibert. Um, ghost image. He says, uh, buses, I can't remember the exact quote, but something like a miraculous tripod, mm-hmm. <clears throat> a moving camera through which you can observe the city. And yeah, it's true. You're never, you're never ever else otherwise, sorry, at this height. Mm-hmm. You're higher than a car, higher than you would be if you're walking, but not quite at the first level of the building. So you kind of can see over what's happening in the street. But you know you're close and far away at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Just as a quick aside, I think this is actually an electric bus. Ah, yes, We're it's on. definitely this... different. The design is different. Yeah, and the, and the sound as well. I mean, for the yeah. recording, it's much. <laughs> yeah. It's much nicer. Um, I'd also like to pick up on that um, that idea of specifically, as I said, Flanners was a, specifically about women walking the mm-hmm. city, um, and it struck me while reading the book, and particularly when you were talking about um, pregnant women, but also. Um, uh, I was thinking of um, uh, people with strollers, which mm-hmm, you know yeah. is, can be men and can be women, but it's often more women mm-hmm. than uh, the men because of the way things mm-hmm. <laughs> shake, yeah. still shake out. And it struck me that yeah, the, in that way, the bus 
is perhaps more suited and more convivial for women traveling the city than the metro. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very true. I never thought about it like that. The bus is a as a kind of by default female space because it's women doing the childcare and shopping kids to and from school. Um, yeah, I remember. It's funny because so much in so much of the book, I spend like looking at other women mm-hmm. and thinking about their lives and wondering how they do what they do, um, whether it's older women or younger women. Um, and then there's a moment in the book where I start paying attention to the strollers because I get pregnant and think like, oh, now I have to know how to do that. Um, and even just now, and you know, now that I I have a child, not from that pregnancy, but um, you know, I'm very very well versed in strollers and buses now. And just now, you know, in that other bus, that the 91 that we had just took, I was attentive to the fact that there is a woman with a mm-hmm. stroller and, you know, want to kind of stay out of her way or see if she needs help or something. So, yeah, I think the that aspect of the bus, the stroller aspect of the bus, um, adds another level of of, um, of, of imperative mm-hmm. to, to observe a certain bus ethics and... and you know, be polite to mothers with strollers because, my God, they're having a tough time. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I mean, you see that particularly on the, on the Parisian metro, which um, I only really have in London to compare to. And London isn't great. But I think for the, from the point of view of stairs mm-hmm. and things like that, it's mm-hmm. um, so for people, people with strollers, people in wheelchairs, mm-hmm. Paris, the Paris metro is almost impossible to navigate. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, I've become a lot more attuned to logistics since I had a kid and like, I, I, sometimes I see people with strollers in, in the tube in London and I think like, how did you do that by yourself? <laughs> I just couldn't. I only take buses with my kid. <laughs> and the other thing I think I wonder about buses being, um, you know, potentially sort of, as you said, sort of by default, a, um, a, a female space is perhaps the, the, the presence of a, a sort of a, a driver, a sort of a, an, an official in the bus at all times a kind of a figure of authority because one thing that can be a little bit um threatening sometimes mm-hmm. to think about the metro is the fact that you sort of if you're in a carriage and mm-hmm. there are there's there's trouble of some kind you are mm-hmm. you are kind of isolated mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah completely yeah i mean i've been on buses in liverpool where there's been like people raving dangerously uh, and the bus driver hasn't done anything and right. one time <laughs> i said something and i was like you know dude like that was a, I felt very threatened just then, and he was like, "Oh, I know that guy. He's on here all the time. You know, I knew you were fine." Okay. <laughs> <laughs> very reassuring. Would have been nice to be let know that. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, so, so we're head- on the ninety-two now. So we're heading towards uh, the Invalides neighborhood. So. Yeah, 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 exactly. I'm trying to. I know it's Ecole Militaire where we have to get off, but I can't remember like what the stop is before it. So, so as we 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 spoke about briefly earlier, the. Um, the when you started taking these notes you didn't have of course any idea of an arc or a narrative because mm-hmm. there were you know this was this was your life you were living you mm-hmm. had no idea what mm-hmm. you had no idea what um what turns it mm-hmm. might take and yet indeed life sort of imposed both a sort of i guess a kind of a micro sort of personal narrative mm-hmm. and uh, and a macro narrative mm-hmm. so the, the micro narrative uh, you talk about is uh when, when you became pregnant and it turned out to be uh, an ectopic mm-hmm. pregnancy and you had to go to a hospital for, for surgery in one of the hospitals that was actually on on the uh, route <laughs> on, on this route yeah yeah um was there any sense in when you were going back and looking over these notes that, that, that you thought that the the process of taking them in any way 
helped you during that mm -hmm. time in sort of articulating what you were feeling um, about what was happening to you? Yeah, I think definitely there's a degree to which writing is therapeutic, mm -hmm. um, if not therapy precisely. Um, and writing is a way of making sense of mm -hmm. what's happening. And, you know, I can't remember who it was who said I write to figure out what I think. Um, and so, you know, that holds true in, in, in the space of the diary. You're mm -hmm. writing to figure out what you think about your life and, and what happened and what you're making of it. Um, you know, to just process the brute emotions and turn them into something maybe that can hurt you less because now it's been intellectualized. Um, we are getting off at the next stop, so I should, well. I should hit the button. Have a little time. It's interesting what you were you were saying about that because I, I was reading recently about um, Susan Sontag mm -hmm. and particularly the way that she reacted to her, her imminent death. Um, and it was sort of, you know, this was somebody who had written and thought so much about, about illness and death. And yet when it came to her final days, it, was, it wasn't that that sort of counted for nothing, mm -hmm. but it was certainly sort of, you know, she was mm -hmm. very distressed, very mm -hmm. panicked. And, and I was thinking about that when, when reading your book, wondering mm -hmm. if there was sort of, um, it, it, because, you know, an ectopic pregnancy is such a sort of a stressful, harrowing mm -hmm. um, experience mm -hmm. to go through. Like if there will always remain a level where sort of even for the for the writer who lives through their words, mm -hmm. that the words can't quite touch the experience. Yeah, definitely. Getting off the bus. Cool. Oh, here we are. Here we are. We ah, we can take our masks off. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously, an ectopic pregnancy is nothing like uh, cancer. Sure. Um, happily, thank God. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's that's true in her in her earlier journals as well. Um, in the first volume, Reborn, I think, is the one where she's diagnosed with cancer for the first time. And David Reef, who her son, who edited them, specifically points out like the lack of writing that there is about that experience, and also I think around his own birth. And her and the breakdown of her marriage to his father. She doesn't really write in her journals about that. It's like there's something happening that's too powerful to address. Um, and yeah, I mean that hasn't been true for me thus far. Like the moments of of high emotion and and crisis in my life, I have been thoroughly documented in my journals. Not in this book. <laughs> the book is definitely only what's happening on the bus and maybe a little bit on the metro. Um, but yeah, I, I do find for me personally that it's important to write about it. Yeah, and the um, the sort of the macro narrative in a way, um, it's, it doesn't exactly bookend the the book because that would be a little bit too neat and be a little bit too forced perhaps. But it is, as you mentioned earlier, there you know, at a certain point in the writing, there are the uh, the Charlie Hebdo attacks, and then you you stop writing the bus diary, but then you come back to. To Paris and public transport, the metro, as you say, um, after the um, the Bataclan attacks or the, the attacks of uh, November 13th, um, and it was it was very interesting for me to read that because a lot of what you say in the way you're feeling about being on the metro um, after those attacks really resonated, and yet it suddenly occurred to me that actually, strangely enough, Paris was one of the few places that was sort of the victim of a major terrorist attack which in this case did not take place on on public transport. And yet there's something about uh, being on public transport that seems to sort of to sort of stoke those th those fears. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, completely, because you can't get out. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're you're in a public place. 
a very symbolic place. I mean, like for years and years, there were bus bombings in Jerusalem on a regular basis. Um, I think about the bus bombings in London in 2005. There was one tube bombing as well. Um, so, you know, and there were bus bombings, there were metro bombings in Paris in the 90s as well. So, you know, it has been done and it could happen again. And it's, you know, this actually, what I was about to say, like, takes me to the heart of the problem of the book, um, which is if bad things are happening, obviously you don't want to be there when they happen. But that, the underside of that is that implies that other people are there and they're the ones at the Bataclan that night. They're the ones on the metro that day. And you don't want that to happen to them either, you know? Like, there's no, there's no, there's no way around it. Um, you can hope for yourself, for your, your own safety and the safety of the people you love, but you also are hoping for the safety of people you don't even know. Mm-hmm. I, I began the conversation by asking about, like, what, what if the neighborhood around Port Royal had changed um, in, uh, in, the, in the seven, the six, seven years since you, you were writing the book? Um, do you think the the attacks, the Charlie Hebdo attacks and the, the Bataclan attacks, have changed Paris? I suppose personally, for you, the way you move around it, the way you experience, the way you think of the city, and for for sort of Parisians more generally, the way that uh, the way that people live here. Mm. It's hard to speak for other Parisians. I mean, there is much more of a military presence mm. in the streets. And now it's been a little while that I haven't been living in Paris, so I don't know if that's eased up. But, you know, François Hollande's, like, declared on a military zone, basically, um, and that got extended, you know, for various periods of time. I'm not sure if it's still going. I'm not up to date on on the situation. Yeah, I think it got kind of mixed when, when the Gilets Jaunes were in. It was right. sort of, and then, oh, right. of course, the pandemic. So there's yeah. various kind of overlapping yeah. states of emergency. Yeah, so the state of emergency then becomes this way that the government can um, justify, mm-hmm. like, overreaching into people, you know, and intruding on people's civil rights, people of color, you know, especially young men of color. Um, are I'm sure their lives have been transformed um, in a very negative way uh, since those attacks. But for me personally, um, you know, not really know and just you know I, I remember intensely feeling that way f- for a while afterward when you would like turn a corner and there'd be like a guy with a machine gun um, you know uh, protecting the state sure. <laughs> um, but it's still that was still traumatic to see a man with a machine gun you know walking around the 11th um, so but you know in in more recent times it's felt more normal and maybe there's a sadness in Paris that's that's always there on some level this is a very melancholy place in a very enjoyable way um but yeah i think it's also as you say been very confused by the gilet jaune period which was a time of great anger not just on the part of the gilet jaune but you know everyone else (laughs) um and then the pandemic a real frustration like they've they've messed this up i remember going into pharmacies you know that first summer and having to hear pharmacists like ranting about Dr. Raoul in Marseille <laughs> and his miracle cures and he was being censored and all of that. So yeah, it's, you know, Parisians love any excuse to like get riled up and, and have a really heated debate about something, but I don't hear them debating anymore about, you know, terrorism. Uh-huh. So before um, we finish, so we're now, we've uh, about 10 minutes ago descended from the um, the 92. And so where where are we sitting now, Lauren? What's, what's this neighborhood that we're in? Yeah, we, we are, the stop is École Militaire, so we're very, I think we're across the street from the, the old military school where I believe Napoleon studied, mm-hmm. and very close to Les Invalides, which is where Napoleon is buried, um, in a grand, like, tomb. 
Um, and we are also very close to the American University of Paris, which is where I was teaching at the time when I wrote this book as an adjunct instructor in the English department and teaching a class on um, urban space in writing and, you know, talking a lot about Georges Perec and Virginia Woolf and all of these people. And sitting here now, as you say, you're not living in Paris full time at the moment. Um, what is your sort of overriding feeling of the city? Is it is it nostalgia? Is it affection? Is it um, is, is, is there a, you mentioned them sort of melancholy? What a how, how would you sum it up? Oh, God, it's really hard. It's it's the only place in the world where I feel like myself. So I feel a great sense of equilibrium um, and calm and also happiness and nostalgia and like almost like my former self has been like atomized into the air. But, you know, but it's not it's not dominated by the past. It also feels very much like there's a continuum with my present and my future. So, yeah, I'm not here for now, but I'll be back. <laughs> it also helps. It's a glorious day. It's so beautiful. Yeah, I had to go back to get my sunglasses. <laughs> well, well, this is it. So I, I realized that um, this this journey we've done together today has probably left both of us in an area of the city where neither <laughs> of us really want to be. So uh, just to finish, Lauren, where? Where are you going from here? Are you heading off on foot? Are you heading off on the metro? And no. not another bus? I actually made a rendezvous with a friend who teaches at AUP, one of my best friends who's teaching today. And so I'm going to go have lunch with her on the Rue Claire. Well, you're much smarter than me, but I think, uh, I think people knew that anyway. <laughs> Lauren, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you, Adam. And thank you, Shakespeare and Company. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then... Take care and thanks again for listening.